Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the particulars of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including Hyundai's next batch of Ionix 5s have some upgrades, Haval is bringing in a GT version of its H6 medium SUV, Kia midsize SUV joins the five-star safety rating group, and should we despec cars to reduce dependence on a large number of semiconductors. In our feature story, we talk a lot about vehicle sales, but in these tough times, has there been a shift to motorbikes? Doug Wiley from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries gives us the latest. And in our road test, we have been testing the Lexus LC500, quarter of a million dollars of luxury in a convertible. But how does it compare to a 1988 Jaguar XJS convertible? Our Jaguar fanatic, Chris, gives a surprising impartial view. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Time to get this program going. First, the news. Hyundai has revised its Ionic 5 all-electric vehicle with more features and revised pricing. The Ionic 5, with its distinctive design and a broader focus on how the interior of a car may be used, has been praised around the world. Now here they have made a clearer distinction between two models, with a base two-wheel drive called the Dynamic and the top-spec all-wheel drive called the Technique. Both end with a Q. New features on both models are a head-up display, which is a great safety and convenience feature, a power output socket on the inside of the vehicle in addition to the existing socket on the outside, so that you can now charge devices in the cabin as well, and the rated range on the rear-wheel drive dynamic has increased to 481 kilometres. The base model price has been reduced to $70,000 plus on-road costs, while the top spec price has risen to $77,500 plus on roads, but also now has a vision roof fixed glass with electric sunblind as a $1,500 option. Sales for the Great Wall Motors Haval H6 have, in percentage terms, skyrocketed this year, being over three and a half times higher than last year, although in part this may be helped by two of their own SUVs, the large H9 and the smaller H2, dropping out of the market. Nonetheless, they are now in 10th place in the highly competitive medium SUV category, above some other more well-known players from Volkswagen, Peugeot, Skoda and Jeep, although supply problems are still a big issue, especially for Volkswagen. To increase their offerings, Great Wall Motors has just imported their GT version of the H6, which they say was developed to offer buyers an alternative option when compared to its H6 sibling. It still has the same 2.0-litre turbocharged petrol engine with the same power outputs, but the GT emphasises its comfort features. It has eco-leather seats, a 10.25-inch coloured LED instrument cluster and multimedia touchscreen, Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, 8-speaker audio, electric tailgate and a suite of safety features. The H6 GT Lux two-wheel drive is priced at $41,000 drive away. 
while the H6 GT Ultra four-wheel drive is priced at $46,500 drive away. All GWM vehicles have a seven-year unlimited kilometre warranty, five years roadside assistance and five years capped price servicing. The Kia Sportage has received an ANCAP 5-star safety rating, and 5 stars has also been extended to the Haval H6 hybrid version, now matching all the other H6 models. Both vehicles are in the medium SUV category. The Sportage is equipped with a centre airbag which provides protection against sideways movements of the driver, and prevents driver and passenger banging their heads together in the side impact test. The ANCAP tests bring to our attention that safety systems in different cars may have the same name, but may not perform the same in different scenarios. The Kia Sportage performed well in most tests of its autonomous emergency braking system in forward travel scenarios when interacting with pedestrians and cyclists, but had mixed results in the test of its AEB system when reacting to other vehicles with poorer performances at test speeds above 60 kilometres an hour, leading to an overall marginal assessment in that particular area. Tests of the lane support system show good performance across most scenarios. This type of variation in specific results is common in other vehicles and emphasises that road safety features do not make us invincible. In a feature interview in the Overdrive Radio program, Doug Wiley from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries notes that a modern car can have up to 3,000 semiconductors, each with a task not only in the engine but for a sunroof to an automatic tailgate. We might get more cars more quickly if there were, at least in the short term, special despect models. But it's not that simple, as Roland Rivero chatted about recently at the Kia Nero launch. Would you be able to say, Mercedes-Benz, uh, you got to put manual seats on an S-Class? It's, it's not, it's not going to happen. So I think that it's, it's a tough one, and it affects every OEM one way or another. And that, uh, you know, every OEM will tackle it in, in what they see fit. Some, some will apply a decontent, as the industry speak and others may work it differently. I can't comment on, on the other OEMs, but I guess from our perspective in Kia, we try our best not to do a decontent and and effectively change or alter our product strategy uh, as much as possible. If, if there is a, a semiconductor issue that we have to manage, we'll probably try to convince our network and our customers into another variant. So instead of, say, a, G, a GT line top-of-the-range Sorento, that might have had a semiconductor shortage issue affecting uh, the panoramic sunroof, for example, we would try to just supply the network instead with a Sport Plus variant that's got a lot of features also, but just is missing that, that panoramic sunroof. And that has been the news. There's been some ongoing talk about the difficulty in the supply of motor vehicles due to, well, supply change difficulties, well, what about motorbikes? Are they an alternative? Are some considering those? And is this reflected in the relative sales of different types of motorbike? Doug Wiley is the Manager of Public Relations for the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, the FCAI, and they're the group to compile both the vehicle and the motorbike car sales. 
Doug joins me on the line. Doug, thanks very much for your time. What is happening with motorbike sales? Uh, look, thanks very much for, for having me, David. Uh, look, our most recent sales data, uh, which we released earlier this week, has seen a shift from off-road motorcycle sales towards road-based motorcycle sales as well as scooters. So this isn't necessarily anything that is uh, unexpected. Uh, we saw a large uptake in the off-road motorcycle and side-by-side off-road vehicle sections of the market before the government's uh, quad safety laws came into play. So we've seen sort of, I guess, a settling of the the marketplace back to still in front of pre-pandemic levels. We saw a shift towards bikes during the pandemic uh, as people were obviously looking at other ways of of recreation and also transport that limited their exposure. Um, So we see these, these cycles and influences on motorbike sales uh, occurring and um, and we're hoping uh, to see uh, a continual growth across all our segments moving forward. COVID may have had a bit of a focus more on local activities and so perhaps bikes out in the bush rather than a flight to another capital city or overseas? Yes, absolutely. So we saw a large uptake in off-road motorcycles uh, and side-by-side vehicles, um, and that's corresponded with people uh, basically not being able to travel overseas and looking for more recreation options uh, at home. And in terms of of land use and working with governments around that, that's something which the industry and the FCAI are watching closely to make sure that we can continue to have access to areas for recreational motorcycle use. Car companies, some have suggested that they've at least looked at, perhaps not adopted, but thought about reducing the features to produce some special models, maybe for short term, that will require less semiconductors. Motorbikes don't have as many semiconductors? No, no, no. By far, they have far less than cars and other types of vehicles. I mean, your your average car would have upwards of 3,000 semiconductors in it. Motorcycles have far less. Um, You'll know that bikes have moved towards uh, electronic fuel injection because of the emission laws. And as a result, obviously, some now do come with basic semiconductors to run those systems, but also things like uh, ABS and um, uh, and, and radio systems and entertainment and that sort of thing, but still far less than, than cars. We're seeing a bigger impact on getting bikes to the country, not necessarily in production, but in the shipments of bikes uh, out of ports to Australian shores. It's becoming more expensive. It's becoming a bigger hurdle to jump. It's become a bigger hurdle to jump, primarily because during the pandemic, so many people moved uh, towards online shopping. Uh, and as a consequence, the price of containers has gone up. Um, and there are backlogs at ports uh, because the pandemic is impacting the workforce locally uh, at those ports. So not just the the motorcycle industry, not just the car industry, but globally, everyone is suffering from this issue with containers. I note, of course, talking about semiconductors, that motorbikes don't have something like a power tailgate. And even if, you know, that adds another semiconductor, at least, into the system. So, you know, we we often forget just how many, and you mentioned 3,000, how many are in a car now? Yes, absolutely. And in terms of semiconductor supply, um, you know, I I understand that uh, once these factories are shut down because their workforce was impacted by the pandemic, it can take actually up to six months to turn the button on again. Uh, If you want to refurbish a factory to design new parts, that's 18 months in terms of the tooling that it takes to, to produce these parts. And if you're building a factory from scratch, you're looking at three to five years.
I think there's another concern on the horizon too with the production of neon, which is used in the lasers which create the semiconductors and the major supplier, perhaps 30 or so percent of the market is the Ukraine area so that the war there may be another disruption. But talking about trends, we talked about off-road. I tend to think of young people on dirt bikes in leathers, but off-road also, of course, includes the farm, and that's going through its own changes at, at this stage as well. Yeah, so so off-roading includes the includes the farm. It also includes a a segment of motorcycling, if you like, called adventure motorcycling, which is both road and uh, and off-road based, and the bikes are considered uh, hybrids. And look, with Australians recovering uh, from the drought, uh, and then also realising that the new quad bike safety laws uh, have come into play, um, we definitely saw a surge towards purchasing uh, off-road vehicles for farm and agricultural use. Uh, over the last two years. It used to be the old Suzuki little four-wheel drive. I had a colleague that had a farm, just loved it. So, you know, it was a three-cylinder, less than a thousand cc's, but it wasn't a quad bike. It was it was better than that. You you would understand the concern about the safety of quad bikes, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And look, our manufacturers uh, have accepted that, um, which is why we're no longer uh, selling them. It's interesting to note that the only other country other than Australia that had this sort of law in place uh, is Israel, uh, and Israel have actually uh, repealed that law uh, late last year. Um, now, as far as our industry is concerned, we definitely agree that that safety uh, rollover protection needs to be in place. Part of the problem we have, though, is that we are still seeing deaths uh, on farms and in rural and regional areas when these vehicles aren't used within manufacturer specifications. So we're still seeing people who aren't wearing seatbelts. We're still seeing people who aren't wearing helmets. We're still seeing people who are overloading the vehicles in terms of how many people uh, the vehicle can can support. So unfortunately, because of that, we're still seeing death and injury. And as an industry, we are proactively uh, working with our brands to make sure that we're informing consumers about how to appropriately use these vehicles so that no one gets hurt or there's a loss of life. Sometimes uh, very young kids, too, are, are part of that tragic toll as well. Yeah. But uh, moving on to a more positive uh, trend and perhaps a little more lighthearted, we talked about trends. If I go back to the 1953 movie Roman Holiday, a Vespa scooter appeared for a very short time as Gregory Peck and uh, Aubrey Hepburn rode through the area. They say they increased the sales there by 100,000 and that by 1962 there were 60 movies that had Vespers in them. Scooters, where's the trend going with those? Uh, well, look, scooters are increasing, as are all our, our road-based platforms. Uh, so people are looking more and more for a way that they can commute to work quickly uh, in a way that lessens congestion and in a way as well that gives them a little bit more of pandemic protection as opposed to using uh, public transport and other services. So the growth in, in scooters and our road vehicles is really strong and, and we're quite happy and pleased with this as an industry. It's an indication perhaps of a certain acceptance of our urbanisation and potentially used not only in capital cities but in regional areas and regional centres that are tending to expand with the use of electronic communications for work. 
Yes, yes, you're, you're not wrong. And in these rural and regional areas, you often have people who will say have their 79 series Land Cruiser Ute for when they need to journey out of town to the property. Uh, but they'll also have something like a, a small CC motorcycle or scooter to get around town uh, in, in a way that, that is easier for them uh, and means they're saving money uh, on fuel as well. Yeah, and interesting stuff, and and we get involved in that in a, our interaction with the transport planning profession as well. Doug, this has been wonderfully informative. Uh, I appreciate the chat, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Anytime. And that's Doug Wiley, who is the Manager of Public Relations for the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, talking about sales in motorbikes. You're listening to Overdrive. With the market continuing to be dominated by SUV sales, luxury sedans like the Genesis G80 are often overlooked. This week I'm driving the G83.5 T Sports Luxury all-drive sedan in a Makalu grey matte colour, and I have to say it's been a pleasure driving around in such luxury and comfort. First up, the G80 looks good, sleek sedan lines that are elegant and stylish. 20-inch alloy wheels with low-profile tyres completes the sports look. Inside, it's all luxury. Multiple electronic heated front seats with ergo motion massage function provide premium comfort. A large 14.5-inch infotainment central screen dominates the central dash area. Wireless phone charging both front and back is a nice touch. The G80 Sport Luxury is powered by the 3.5-litre turbo petrol engine with 279 kilowatts, 530 new means, driving an all-wheel drive system and an 8-speed automatic transmission. Other drive features include rear-wheel steering, active road noise control, Sport Plus drive mode and launch control mode, priced from around $123,000 plus usual costs. This is Motoring Minute. I'm Brianna Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. And now a little bit of feedback. We've had a significant reaction to a Facebook post we put up about which cars became a classic when they are a regular feature in a television show. Fame and style can be two different things, though. Short-term acclaim versus becoming a classic. Classic being judged over a period of time to be of the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. The Dodge Charger defined the Dukes of Hazard, but perhaps not in a good way. Bulk versus style, hillbilly, self-righteous, sexist with the Confederate flag on the roof. Now, the Haggerty Company noted the Dodge Charger achieved domestic acclaim in the late 1960s and early 70s when it became the car to beat in NASCAR racing, but it was nothing to the international fame bestowed upon it by the Dukes of Hazard, a TV action comedy, action, uh, comedy, uh, that defined early 80s Saturday night entertainment. Now, I never thought the Dodge Charger as an elegant design, but looking at a photo from the side, it initially struck me as having some good elements from a time when a macho image rather than elegance dominated. But from the front and three-quarter view, it gives way to American bulk. Our Brian Smith noted that John Cleese brought attention to an Austin 1100 countryman when he beat it with a stick in Faulty Towers when it wouldn't start. Mr. Bean gave the Mini a whole new persona. Brian, who is erudite, a great reader of the classics, utterly surprised me when he was enthralled with the 1976 Ford Gran Torino from Starsky and Hutch. 
the red one with the big Nike swoosh painted down the side. It reinforces my thesis that you can tell the age of a man by the car that he loves because it coincided when he went through puberty. The great examples, of course, are the saint who brought the Volvo P1800 to the attention of the world. But for me, the best is the Persuaders with Roger Moore in an Aston Martin and Tony Curtis in a Ferrari Dino, which was a great use of cars to define the characters. But it did bring out the purists. I mentioned that Roger Moore's Aston was a V8. Actually, I was told it started as a six-cylinder. Then a colleague from years ago wrote, quote, That shot of the DBS with the doctored-up front is like nothing I've ever seen before. The TV car was originally a DB6 with the four headlights inside a traditional Aston Martin chrome grille. Looks like they have masked off one of the headlights on each side and divided off the original grille to make the same car look more like the later DBS V8. Clearly being accepted as a classic demands a certain purity. You're listening to Overdrive. We've just been driving the Lexus LC500 two-door sports car. It's been around for a little while, but it's wonderful elegance to it. It has a V8 engine with a massive 351 kilowatts and 540 newton metres of, of torque. So it's not without its performance aspect as well. But the one we had wasn't the coupe, it was in fact the convertible. So let's talk about convertibles and uh, compare them perhaps with others that have been around. Who better to do that than our Jaguar expert from Melbourne is Christopher. G'day mate, how are you? Yeah, good mate, how are you? Good. Now you have a convertible too, can you describe it? I've got a, a convertible XJS, a 1988 model. Uh, they were quite sophisticated for their day, you know, big V12 engine. It had ABS brakes, you know, uh, heated seats, electric mirrors and all that sort of thing. Yeah, great car. Which were big in their time, wasn't this Jaguar? I love the front of the look of them. The coupe had a rather distinctive rear tail and window sort of arrangement. I think the convertible looks rather good. The um, buttresses on the rear of the XJS were always controversial. Of course, Malcolm Sayer, the designer of the uh, C-type, D-type and E-type, did it as a, an aerodynamic device, and the car went quite well. I mean, it, it was designed as a continental cruiser, so it could do up to 150 miles an hour and do it in silence and quiet. Ah. When you drive the convertible, it is quite silent. You went around in the passenger seat with Alan driving, so there was possibly a bit of noise, some from the engine, others from Alan talking, but <laughs> the interesting thing was that it really did have some sting in the tail. Oh, very quick. Yes, a couple of times we um, stopped and then he just floored it and it, it's a sink you back in your seat sort of power, though not as much as when we went in the uh, F-Type. The F-Type sounded pretty good. The Lexus, how did that go to the years? Yeah, yeah no, sounds good. D definitely a V8 growl and burble. In fact, even on the silent mode, I was quite surprised at how loud it was. We have a recording here of you in the car and your reaction to the performance. Like that. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh boy. <laughs> now that's. 
Now, Alan had the roof down initially and the windows up. How was the sound then? Was it too intrusive? No, not really. A, a pleasant sort of sound, really. As I said before, I was surprised that in the, whatever the mode was, non-sport mode or comfort mode, it still had quite a lot of sound there. And I would have thought that might get on your nerves a little bit if you were on a long trip, say, to Sydney or somewhere. But when they put the top up now, I think there's much talk about it having the Lexus four layers in the convertible, which, by the way, went up automatically rather easily. What what happens with your XJS? Oh, the XJS, you have to, you know, old car, you have to uh, stop, put the handbrake on and put it in park, and then it will put the top up. Whereas with this, it was obviously a modern car. You could actually put the top up uh, as you were moving, not at high speed, but at, at reasonable speed. But when the top was up then, did those four layers reduce the sound appreciably? Oh, very well. It was excellent, actually. I mean, it, and the way I told that is not the, not the exhaust burble. It was you were sealed off from the traffic outside. Uh, you could hear the trucks, but you, they were not intrusive at all in other cars, not at all. The modern cars have large rims and low-profile tyres. As a touring car... Would you say that your Jaguar was a bit softer? Much smoother. Smoother. And not as pounding on you in the seat. As James May would say, all these cars are tested at Nürburgring. They all want to sort of be able to do massive corners and you wonder whether or not you lose the comfort of what the car is. And I guess my first feeling was, what is this car meant to be? Is it meant to be a sports car? or a luxury car, certainly the appearance of it and the, the silence of it with the top up, uh, down rather, it would give the appearance of being a luxury car, especially with all the fine detail in the car and the options that it has. It's not as if it's truck-like yet. It is oh, no. one that lets you feel the bumps. Well, not let you, but you do feel the imperfections in the road, whereas some of the older cars... I think I mentioned many years ago, I was interviewed by Gary O'Callaghan, a great radio broadcaster, where I described a car as having a certain taut suspension. And he said, what does that mean? I said, well, it doesn't wallow. And he said, give me the wallow any day. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I guess you did the comparison there with, with the XJS and you've driven it and it's a very comfortable sort of smooth ride but i guess you pay for that through corners a little bit we know the principle is there when we've got some four-wheel drives that they'll absorb the bumps and that but to a lesser extent and in a different environment that can be helpful when you're going along a motorway yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah the, the, the xjs has 70 profile tires so there's quite a bit of sponge there i guess 70 see i would be guessing i haven't looked it up uh, that the Lexus would be around 35. Yeah, it's pretty pretty skinny. <laughs> pretty skinny. Now, that really means the amount of rubber between the, the edge of the rim and the, t and the road. Yes. And some of these very low-profile tyres look like a bit of licorice around the outside of a rim. Yes, Dave. In the, in the day, back in the, the 70s, we used to think 60 profile was pretty flash and pretty cool, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, Dave. See ya. 
And that's our Melbourne correspondent, a Jaguar lover in his own way, but uh, prepared to accept other cars and their strengths and weaknesses, but give him a nice touring along a, a motorway in the countryside. Um, horses for courses. This is Overdrive across Australia. 2021 marked the 70th anniversary of the iconic Toyota Land Cruiser, and obviously they have a 70th anniversary special edition. Amongst these are 80 versions of the 76 series wagon based on the GXL grade. Externally it is distinguished by the black heritage grille of Toyota lettering, the black front bumper, wheel arch flares enclosing the dark 16 inch alloy wheels. It's got front fog lamps and daytime running lamps, have been upgraded LED units and there's now a standard snorkel. Inside the seats are clad in a premium black leather-like upholstery, Black leather accented trim on the steering wheel and gear shift, a wood grain look trim and instrument panel, and a pair of cup holders, which is very handy. All versions are powered by the 4.5 litre turbo diesel V8, producing 151 kilowatts and 430 Nm, steamed to a 5 speed manual transmission. Like all 70 series vehicles, there's a 3.5 tonne brake towing capacity. Front and rear differential locks are raised, air intake at 130 litre fuel capacity. Priced from $78,500, it is exceptionally expensive, but that doesn't seem to stop buyers. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Doug Wiley, Chris Ledbeater, Rob Fraser and Paul Just. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.